Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Breathtaking landscapes. Mythical creatures. A people cast from the frozen rocks. Explore a world of adventure, ritual, and mystery. Explore the Ice Age. It's said that when Alexander conquered East, the Buddha conquered West. Now the Greek world is finally, finally at peace. The trumpets rumble from the Acropolis while you debate the Dharma in the Agora. Do not dwell in the past. Do not dream of the future. Just be in Athens, Samsara. My grandfather told stories around his hearth. My father fought the legions of Rome. I stoked the fires of the great iron mules. My son will write our history by gaslight. Welcome to Rome Industrial. Hi, I'm Jordan Harbour. If you're ready to do a little time travel, come visit The Twilight Histories on iTunes, Google Play, and on the website at twilighthistories.com. Greetings, comrades! This episode is all about childhood and fun. I'm happy to announce that this is the least depressing episode so far. Great success! But, you know, let's start with a bit of philosophy this time. There's a wonderful word in Portuguese. Saudade. It represents a special feeling. A memory of something with a desire for it. Now... It's important to note that saudade is not nostalgia. In nostalgia, one 
has a mixed happy and a sad feeling. A memory of happiness, but a sadness for its impossible return and the sole existence in the past. Saudad is like nostalgia, but with the hope that what has been longed for might return, even if that return is unlikely or so distant in the future to be to be almost <clears throat> or so distant in the future to be almost of no consequence to the present. Well, that's one way to put it at least. Another way is that nostalgia is our own feelings about something. The memories of a certain experience that we have had and the longing for the ability to live through that experience once again. It's the desire to be to be in that moment again. Saudad is more object-centered. At least that's what I learned about it. When I remember how I used to be a kid and play with things, that's nostalgia because I want to relive my childhood happiness. I want to catch that feeling of being a kid and playing with those toys again. It's a memory of that exact experience. Saudad is when I as an adult miss those things because I'd like to have fun with them right now. I miss the things themselves which would allow me to get fun right now. Is the yearning of those things which I remember to have had fun with. But not because I want to be a kid but because I'd love to get those things now to get new experiences but I cannot and that creates this special feeling of emptiness now what does this have to do with entertainment in the USSR well while reading on this subject i understood that for quite a lot of things which were extremely fun as a kid growing up at that time we just seemed great and the experiences were awesome there's a problem I wouldn't want to relive those times again because well I could have seriously hurt myself and others and now I just can't get those things to try to have fun with them again because I doubt that I'd be able to get as much fun from them even because for one I'm actually concerned about safety right now nor will allow my children when I'll have some in the future to do these things because wow i used to be a crazy person when i was a kid and so were many other kids and our parents really really yelled at us of course not everything that the kids in the ussr did for fun was dangerous and i'll talk about all of the safe things too and about adults too at one point But when talking about the stuff that our parents strictly forbade us to do but we did anyways, I understood where we in the Soviet Union did this to yourself spirit. How we got that. Because it started right in the childhood. It was taught by the state and then it was turned around to do crazier things than originally intended. Because if you're not actively trying to do things that might hurt you as a kid, oh, you're not a Soviet kid. But we'll get to that part. Let's talk about the mandated stuff first, as happiness is mandatory even for children. <laughs> Here's a Soviet joke to get you in the right mood. 70s. The teacher in a kindergarten in Moscow suburb is telling a story to the children. In the Soviet Union, people eat well and wear fancy clothes. They also live in nice spacious apartments. All of the children in the USSR 
have a ton of beautiful and very fun toys. But the little Vovochka in the corner, he starts crying. So the teacher asks him, well, what's wrong? Vovochka replies, I, 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 want, I want to live in the Soviet Union. Hmm. You get the idea. Remember how last time I talked about the mandatory kindergartens where you were raised in the spirit of the collective? Well, as the Communistic Party were really in this collective stuff, they had mandatory organizations for school children as well. Because while in school, the party, at least in theory, can oversee you, making sure what you do in the free time is a bit more difficult. Also, the party thought that maybe, with proper incentives and a bit of work, they could make sure that in case of, well, let's say people of some oppressed capitalist nation suddenly rises up and happily demands that the USSR help them institute the Soviet paradise in that said country. Or for one, evil capitalists are oppressing our proletariat brothers somewhere again. Oh God, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, Lenin forbid even attacking the greatest country on the planet. You get the picture. And then we'd have to do mass mobilization. And if you've been trained as a kid to be in shape and to be able to do useful stuff, then it's easier to get all the people bad already. And strangely enough, this turned out to be one of the best, most fun and most useful things the USSR ever did. Even though it originally was intended for somewhat military purposes. Because, at least in the Baltics, people didn't really take the ideological part very seriously. With exceptions, of course. But the things you were able to do as a kid and what you learned were amazing. And all for free, obviously. Some of them would cost a lot of money these days, but back then, just wow. See, the government looked at the scout movement in the USA and decided to make a clone of that. Obviously communistic-oriented. Children from the ages of 7 to 10 were enrolled in the Oktobrani organization. That's the Latvian term for them, which would translate approximately to Kids of the October or October Kids in English. Named so because of the Great Revolution, which happened in October according to that time and stuff like that. Also, they were often poetically called Lenin's grandchildren. And I really can't decide between saying Lenin in English or just Lenin like it should be said. But that's beside the point here. Anyways, like scouts in the Boy Scout or Girl Scout organization have their rules, the Oktobrani have their own set. Now, let's see what we can learn from those. They were. Number one. Oktobrani are the next pioneers. Pioneers being the second age group in the organization, ages 10 to 14, who oversaw and led the Oktobrani activities. Number two. Oktobrani are sincere and brave, clever and crafty. Number three. Only those who love work are called Oktobrani. Number four. Oktobrani are diligent, they love school and respect their parents. Which is kind of funny because Pavlik Morozov, which I spoke about in last episode and previously too, was one of their mascots, uh, patron saints if you will. Now, don't forget your conditionals. And the number five. Oktobrani are friendly children 
They read, draw, play around, and sing, and are... And I would like to have a drum roll here. Always happy. If you ever wondered, this is where our catchphrase comes from. Also, well, as you can see, the do-it-yourself attitude is embedded right there. Because it's not like the government didn't know how the people lived. So, you know, this was actually useful. Also, they, at least in Latvia, also had their own periodical magazine. Zilite. That's a name for a tiny bird thing, which sometimes eats me too in the winter, and I really can't figure out the proper name in English. Uh, but it's a tiny bird thing, okay? So, let's get on with this. So, this Zilite magazine began publishing in 1958. And it eventually turned into a general kids' magazine by the late 80s, and ran until about 1994-1985. At least I don't remember seeing it anywhere after that, and I really can't get my hands on the precise data. The magazine got scandalous and sensational in 1989 when it published a graphic comic special issue. The special issue was explaining to kids how children are made. It was done the same way as you'd see in any kids-centered educational material about sexuality today. But obviously, it caused a huge furor back then. But it wasn't prohibited, mind you. And no nipples were censored either. <laughs> okay, a podcast tangent right now, just because I don't know how to put it elsewhere. There's a cultural difference between me and the USA right here. The USSR was trying to be a polite, modest, somewhat puritanical country even, with all these family values and with this una sex senyato, or we don't have sex attitude. But, you know, when something concerning any form of sexuality got published, it was also sincere. If your book about proper sexuality for newly married, about which I have spoken in previous podcasts, or that Soviet Italian action movie, about which I'll speak in the future, or this exact educational material about reproduction for kids finally got approved, then they wouldn't censor it. Of course, such materials were extremely rare, but hey, you know, once you got it in, you got it in. Censorship of female nipples is one of the things that I don't understand about the American culture. Because what I've accustomed to take as normal over here is that Parents were much more concerned about their kids seeing excessive violence than any sexual thing. Now, obviously, we're not talking about perversions of sex seen in the capitalist countries, quote-unquote. But while it happened in a so-called civil manner, that is, in marriage, while you love each other, it was completely fine. Because, you know, by itself, violence here was seen as a naturally bad thing. But sex... Well, the kids are going to do that eventually anyways, and you shouldn't talk about it in polite society and should and it should only be done <clears throat> and it should only be done as an act of love between two people. But that's not all bad all by itself. In general, the society was way less sexualized than it is right now. People just didn't see things that way. For one, in the last episode, I talked about saunas, which were, and still are, extremely popular. 
Now, obviously, in public saunas, you covered yourself with a blanket. But the traditional way, when doing it with family members or with close friends in a private sauna or just in a private event, was to do it completely naked. Easier to get a traditional leaved birch branch spanking done for blood circulation and massage purposes and then to jump in a cold pond right when you exit the sauna. It's just easier when you're naked. And people took, and are still taking, their kids with them in there as well. Of course, it's traditionally gender-separate, but small kids up to puberty, like, really small kids, they weren't really sorted in such a way until the kid asked to be like, I want to go with the men, or something like that. And they really weren't sorted in such a way and just went in naked with whichever parent took them with them. Now, I can hear you just screaming sexual abuse right away, but the thing is, in this society, this whole culture, we didn't and actually don't sexualize children at all. And any forms of abuse were extremely rare. And even now, when we have a pedophile in the news, those are big, big news. They're really rare, because we just don't do this we don't even have such beauty pageants as the people in the USA have. And I'm just maybe just playing to the stereotypes here. But when the whole Latvian and Baltic culture encountered these beauty pageants that I've, I've seen in the internet and watched some series about it, like, oh, the infamous, oh, here comes honey, boo-boo or something, it infuriates us. It scares us. We're not used to turning small children into any sexual objects here, okay? So, all of this going to sewn and everything, it's just a part of our culture. Just a no- It was just a normal thing to do, and I know people who do this even now, because we just don't care that much about it. We care a bit more now, since we've been a bit Americanized, but otherwise, I don't, I don't know. We just don't treat them that way. So, all this mess about over-censoring sexuality when violence is considered somewhat okay is a bit unnatural for me. Because if it's after, say, 9 o'clock or 10 o'clock or if it's late in the evening, you can swear to national television here or show nipples or whatever. Because censorship about these issues is just so foreign to me and I wanted to talk about this in some form because... It confused me as as on the Lester Bonapartes, and I'll be posting uh, one of my first entry shows on Lester Bonapartes as an extra episode here. Don't worry, for Patreon supporters, free of charge, just so you know what I'm doing there. Uh, there, some discussions about sex got, like, censored out and bleeped, even though the discussion there is about violence a lot. So, hey... If you have any comments on how and why American culture is so much more obsessed with censoring sexuality rather than violence, which is much more delicate subject here, let me know. Okay, wow. <laughs> that was crazy. I should get back on the topic. Back to Oktobrani and Pioneers. Yeah, Pioneers, or Pioneeri in Russian, were the age group of the Youth Party Organization for Kids from the ages of 10 to 14. They were led and organized by Komsomol. Komjonatne in Latvian? In English, that would be something like Communist Youth Organization. Komsomol is an abbreviation of the Communist Youth Union in Russian. And, as you all know, if you've been listening to this show, Soviets loved abbreviations. 
Now, pioneers, unlike the October kids, had a special oath they had to give when becoming pioneers. And they had their own special set of rules. The oath, translated to English, was as follows. Quote, I, name surname, while stepping in the ranks of the all-union pioneer organization in front of my comrades solemnly swear to love my fatherland with passion, to live, learn, and fight as dictated by the great Lenin and as taught by the Communist Party, always obey the laws of the pioneers of the Soviet Union, be ready, always ready. A few comments here. That all-union thing comes from a word in Russian, всесоюзный, or vissavienibs, in Latvian. It was used to describe all things related to the Soviet Union as a whole, in this case denoting that this oath was given not to just the pioneer organization of the specific Soviet Republic, remember the USSR is not as monolithic as often thought, but rather to the all of the various Soviet Republic organizations at the same time. It's similar to how the people use the term federal in the United States, but obviously as USSR wasn't a federation on paper, but it was rather a union, they couldn't use that term. Secondly, the be ready, always ready part is the official two-part pioneer reading and answer. You salute to each other and to the officials this way. Like, you tell to someone, be ready, and they respond, always ready. Well, ready for what, you might ask. And many people did. Well, for everything, was the official answer. But, obviously, you know exactly for what these kids were supposed to be ready, seeing how the USSR operated and how they were basically the analogs of the scout organization. Being ready meant that 1941 shouldn't happen again. Being ready meant that you have to be ready to serve the state, in whatever means simple to understand, and it kind of was worked into the organization. Now, about the reglement. The most important points of the Pioneer Reglement, or the set of rules or laws, were adopted in the 13th of December, 1957. Before that, it was somewhat similar to the Oktobran Code, just a bit more older kids related. In 1957, it got political. Three points were added then. Number one. Pioneer prepare <clears throat> number one. A pioneer prepares himself for the entry in the communistic party. Number two. A pioneer honors the memory of those people who have given their lives for the Soviet Union. And number three. A pioneer is a friend of all the children in the world. Now, officially, this politicization was explained by the necessity to improve the structural integrity of the organization and the quote, improvement of the methods of the socialistic work, end quote. By the way, recent experts today connect this political addition to the Pioneer Code with the riots and the rebellions in Poland and Hungary when they were sort of doing their independence thing. Why? Well, because this code was universal and not country-specific. This means that even Hungarian and Polish kids were to honor those people who died for the Soviet Union. I'll leave the figuring out exactly why that makes some people in these countries very angry as an exercise for the listener. So, what did these pioneers slash October kids actually do? 
Well, besides the political stuff, like various parades and celebratory events, and being tasked with being the honor guard to the multitude of Lenin monuments, Lenin monuments, whatever, all over the country on those dates, they actually, actually learned a lot of useful stuff. They had summer camps, just like scouts do, where they learned a lot about survival, they were taught how to craft various things, and then just had a good time with various sports and communist summer camp fun stuff. In the rest of the time, as well as the camps, they were encouraged to learn basic engineering, taught how to do basic plumbing and electric repairs, tasked with collection of metal scraps or maculature for recycling, encouraged to do various sports, uh, including chess for improved logical thinking abilities, and I really hope I'll get to all of the rich chess history in the USSR, because if not, I'll have to dedicate a whole episode for this. And the pioneers were taught various important things that every kid should know. Like, for example, how to orient yourself with a compass in an unknown environment. How to protect yourself from a chemical attack. How to disassemble and assemble an AK-47. How howitzers operate. And, of course, how to scout for the positions of enemy vehicles. Fun stuff to do in summer camps. Pioneers also had all sorts of motivational slogans for these activities. Like, quote, Pioneers for fatherland when collecting scrap metal and maculature. Or, Pioneers... The strong, the brave, the clever. Or, pioneers, friends of all beautiful things. Often, the musketeer slogan was also used. You know, the famous one. One for all, all for one. The the name of the author, Alexander Dumas, was usually omitted, though. For most people, while responding to this propaganda, well, their attitude was something like this, and I'm throwing another joke here. Because I love these Soviet jokes. They really represent the zeitgeist. So here you go. A teacher asks little Vovachka, a popular character of these jokes, Who's your father? Comrade Stalin, he replies. And your mother? The Soviet fatherland. And what do you want to be when you grow up, Vovachka? Or, or whom just would you like to be yourself? The teacher enthusiastically asks. And Vovachka just sighs. An orphan. So this is this is an example of how seriously the pol- political stuff of all of this was taken. All of this official, useful stuff was very pop- popularized. For one, in every town there was a club for children where you could go and learn how to do something for free. For basically everything. Regio amateurism, all sorts of sports, chess, engineering. Arts, music, dancing, sciences, especially chemistry, by the way. All kinds of these clubs. And that was amazing. Right now, you'd have to pay to participate in such activities, but back then, they were just there. And sometimes, it got really strange. Now, let's turn the clock back and go back to the late 30s in the USSR. Back then, the pioneer organization structure wasn't as developed as it got later in the Cold War. But the clubs for schoolchildren were there. And you know what was the most promoted, most government-supported, and the most popular club of them all? Well, if you were 16 and above, you could join the parachuting club. 
There were base jumping towers everywhere, and military planes for real jumps for such clubs were widely available. It was super fun and super huge, but... And I'll get to this when I'll talk about the World War II, when I'll feel good enough to talk about this. But yeah, as you can see here, Stalin was basically trying to train the Soviet youth to be paratroopers. But paratroopers are extremely unwieldy and almost useless when used as a defensive mechanism. They're good for infiltration and offense. Okay, too much. I'll get to some of these theories in my show eventually. What matters now is that when the USSR decided that the army needed some special sort of personnel, as the conscription was universal and they kind of switched around the people who were conscripted, they just promoted and organized various clubs related to that activity. Also, these parachuting clubs were suddenly closed after the World War II. There were some, but on a much, much lower scale. But yeah, imagine being able to do parachuting for free and actually being encouraged to do this while you're a 16-year-old teenager. It must have been simply amazing. So this is, this is the part where I really have to emphasize the fact that Sometimes the Soviet Union, when it was just doing its own goals, was really great. As I've been asked to tell about the good things in the USSR. And, and you know what? Childhood and all these opportunities are one of these things. Is one of these things, more likely. Now, we'll get on this later. But while things are being amazing, I'd like to take a small break for the info stuff. Hello, listeners. It's me this time, not Alice, because she's still 250 kilometers away and without a PC, but that'll be solved soon enough. Now, firstly, I want to apologize for this info segment. Some people have written bad things about it to me, and one listener even gave us a two-star review on Stacher because of this. And I've seen that review, and you, dear listener, you have a valid point there. But I'll explain why these segments are here and why I have to do them. For one, this is my job now. I was moved to a new position in my newspaper and my boss... Well, let's just say that she isn't a nice person. I was forced to do unpaid overtime and when my grandmother died last week... She forbade me to visit her funeral. I'm a rough man with a strong sense of honor. So I quit. I won't work for such people... Such greedy people without any sense of decency. I'm a freelance journalist now, and thankfully I'm known well enough to actually get my stuff published if I send a good article in. But this is my main job. And to pay the bills and make this show, I actually need your support. And sadly enough, sponsors. I've joined the PodTrack Metrics thing, and they organize ad campaigns for podcasters, which I really want to do. Not because I'd love to bombard you with ads or anything but because it's a way of making a living in this wild west of unregulated podcasting. If you want to think about it some way, you can say that it's a great way how we acquire the capitalist company money, yes, yes, or, or something of that sort. Now don't get mad. If all goes well, then it only means that I'll be able to produce longer and better researched episodes, or possibly more episodes, as I'll have more time to work on them. As long as all of this, including my articles, pays my bills and helps me get through my PhD, I will be doing this and I'll be just doing my best every time as much as I can. Now, if you want to support this show, and I will be very happy if you do, 
I have posted a link to two surveys on my site, theeasternborder.lv. That's what the metrics company wants me to do so that they can find appropriate sponsors. Please, please fill one of those surveys if you could. It would help me make a better show and to actually promote stuff that you might like when the metrics get sent. One's a shorter version, one's a bit longer. And remember, if this works out, then you will get better episodes, I promise you that. Because right now my sound quality is the way it is because I don't have an access to a studio. But I'm trying to improve in every way that I can. Because I'm both thankful about your criticism, comrades, and I take it very seriously. I'm reading every email and every comment and every tweet sent to me. Because if I'm stooping so low as actually promoting Patreon every time is not considered an honorable thing to do, at least not in Latvia, if I'm stooping so low because I really need that support, then I want to give you the best content possible. And I read your criticism and I appreciate it. And actually... I'm very thankful for those who have already filled the surveys as I promoted them on social media, and especially to the guy or the lady who left me the two-star review. I read it and understood that I should do things better. I should improve even more. So thank you for that one. I'm trying to pull through here, and I'm trying to tell you the story of my people. No social media or Patreon promotion this time. I've said that I'll hopefully be running ads... And that's sad enough. What I will mention is that Dark Myths are a huge help to me. And Jordan Harbour from Twilight Histories is there just leading all of this thing and being great at it. And Ryan Caligari from Rumor Flies podcast is editing this show while Alice is away. So go check out those podcasts. They're great guys too. And I'm here just to tell you my story and give you the best experience ever. And I do listen to criticism, and I'm actually very thankful for it. I hope we can work this all out. And now, I apologize again, and back to the show. Now, this attitude to crafting things and, quote, useful stuff, unquote, was very pervasive even in everyday life. Books were cheap, cheaper than toys in the USSR, and toys tended to be of poor quality or very expensive. For one, a Rubik's Cube cost 10 rubles in the 70s, when an engineer was paid 120 rubles in salary. A motorcycle, just for comparison here, cost 839 rubles. Same as a color television set, by the way. A car was 5,000 rubles and upwards. A pair of jeans on the black market, around 200 rubles. Books, however, cost a ruble and some kopeiki at most, and usually way below a ruble. So people, including children, read a lot. For adults, the most popular thing to read were criminal novels, or novels about the war and science fiction. Science fiction was the bomb. Children's books were basically rip-offs of popular USA stuff, and various stories and fairy tales from all around the world. I remember there was a series of books called The World's Children, which were essentially a gathering of stories 
about the children in the various places in the world. Somehow, always, the kids from the capitalist countries were either depicted as extremely wealthy and rich, oppressing other people, or just tales about how the poor people really, really suffered and how the children suffered. For example, I remember reading a story as a kid about uh, some family in rural Mexico, which basically kind of mixed breadcrumbs with milk for their dinner thing, and how difficult they had it there, because the evil American capitalists oppressed them. So that was a thing. Also, for some reason, works by Scandinavian authors, like Astrid Lindgren from Sweden and Tuve Jansson from uh, Finland, were huge. The first book I remember reading as a kid, like my first book ever, was Moomins and the Magic Hat for one. And the one about the comet was the second one, and I really, really love the Moomins still. Now, Lindgren's stuff was the, was the more popular stuff here. Like about Emil and about Pepe Longsocks, especially the one, uh, I only have read this in, in Latvian, about the one where this family from Stockholm goes to, like, a camping spot, resting place, summer condo, in summer, and then they have a lot of adventures there. But the most important, the popular children's book character was Karlsson, Who Lives in the Roof, by Astrid Lindgren. I can't really explain why, but the strange fat guy with a propeller on his back was everywhere. He even made it into political jokes. Here's one for you. Brezhnev somehow walks to a window and looks outside. He sees a man flying around with a propeller on his back. Hey, who are you? asks Brezhnev. What? Don't you recognize me? I'm Karlsson, the man answers. What Karlsson? What kind of a Karlsson? What is this? Brezhnev is confused. The flying man is even more confused and says back to him. Oh, come on, what, haven't you really read about me? Everyone has read about me. Now Brezhnev goes into his thoughts for a moment, thinks a bit, and after a while gives a reply. Wait, wait, Karlsson? Oh, Karlsson! Yeah, somehow I didn't recognize you instantly. Uh, by the way, how's your friend Engelsson doing? <laughs> An important part were the so-called educational books. What I have here with me is an awesome book called To Men Under the Age of 16. Now, it contains a ton of political stuff, but it's very representational of the general attitude of the Soviet government to the children at the time. And although I didn't manage to get my hands on an analogical book for girls, they existed and were written in a similar vein, so do some analytical continuation to get the full picture here, okay? So, the book contains a ton of political stuff and inspirational stories from all over the world, but mostly USSR, and of course interviews with famous Soviet people. For example, it contains a story about how a test pilot who's suffered a crash is learning English in hospital via vinyl records while mending his tons and tons of broken bones. And about what bravery means and how an honorable person should act, for example. Now, this, this whole psychological stuff, and it's less communistic and more about being just a good person, because this is a really good book I'm, I'm holding here. 
this whole thing is intermingled with all sorts of practical stuff. For starters, the book kind of says to you what instruments you need to craft or to fix something and how to take care of them and how to do awesome do-it-yourself projects like, and this is from the book, like a wooden slide for the kindergarten children in the playground or how you can make bigger slides in the winter using water and snow and how to build them using wooden, wooden sticks and planks and stuff. It also includes information about how a bike works, how a moped works, how a motorcycle and a car works, and how to fix them if they break down, how to sharpen knives and properly handle them, how to use them in woodworking, for example, and what you can do with a sharp knife. also includes a very nice inspirational story about a family arguing. And this is an example, fictional family. And there's this family arguing, and there's a husband and a 10-year-old son and a mother. And the father is just giving his 10-year-old son a pocket knife, a, a kind of a Swiss army knife, just, you know, Soviet-made, but really sharp with lots of tools in it, to his son as a birthday gift. And the mom in this story, in this book, is against this one. And she's like, oh, no, he will cut himself. Because, yeah, we were really against the, how would you call them, helicopter moms back then. But the idea is that the father in the story explains that, one, the son, will, the son will need to learn how to operate with the knife and with a lot of other instruments. And this knife will be extremely useful to him when he's, for example, camping or doing any other stuff which was expected from a Soviet man to do in his life, such as fix everything around the house. And that it's much better to give him a sharp knife and to give him instructions how to use it properly then, for example, give him a blunt knife, because, you know, kids will be kids and boys will be boys, apparently. And they will use these blunter knives and they'll just rip them. They'll just rip their own tissue or something. But with a sharp knife, what'll he get? He'll just cut himself a bit and it'll just, you know, heal. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to be fine. Kids got to learn. The boys got to learn how to handle a knife, okay? So, it, in the end, this story comes out to the mother saying, well, fine, but you better take a look at the kid, like take, take control of this kid, how he's studying all of this. And the father says, well, of course, because when you give a sharp knife to a small boy, you kind of want to make sure he knows what he's doing with it. And there were all these books who actually taught that and who taught that, you know, yeah, kids cutting themselves, ah, that's okay. Well, it's like you would want your, I, I don't have children here, so my reaction may be a bit different. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. But I think that it's kind of okay for the kids to, like, cut themselves while using a sharp knife to do woodwork. It's, it's not like they'll 
do anything terrible to themselves and they'll just stop when they all feel pain. Sure, tragic accidents may happen, but they're very rare and the value of the skill learned is actually really important. We're not talking about extremely small kids here, we're talking about some, some starting with an age of 10 here, up to 16, which the book was meant for. But this is the Soviet attitude. Yeah, sure, whatever. Some percentage of kids will just cut themselves and, I don't know, maybe even cut their fingers off. Who cares? Now, the rest of them, the rest of them will get better. But this is not irresponsible, actually. Because the book also holds, in the very next chapter, after the following story and all, the, all of this, actually tells you how to properly disinfect a wound, for example, using various means. Also, it tells you how to give first aid, how to... How to, for example, save a, a drowning person. And, and, and these bo- this book isn't unique. These books were all around the place. And some of them contained instructions on what to do with chemicals. Some of them in, in included weird mathematical equations you were supposed to solve. Uh, those mathematical, mathematical equation books were mostly ones where the kids were educated about inventions. And how inventions worked. And how industrial revolution changed this. Of course, it had a lot of politics in it. But the thought was, the Soviet Union was really trying to teach kids how to make stuff and how to be productive. In in the real world sense. And it's some sort of a knowledge which is kind of lost right now. We still have a home economics class in Latvia at this moment. And Alice is uh, studying to become a home economics teacher. For for girls, because that's still gender separated here. Uh, but and also an English teacher, but but still, this is a valuable skill. Those are valuable skills to have for a person, I think. And even though richer countries from the West might look down on us for this, but I know how to fix things around my own house. I know these things, and I find it great. It's kind of a different school of things, because the Soviet people in the childhood especially, and I'm getting into the deep philosophical weeds right now, they weren't taught how to buy things and how to manage and operate money and how businesses work. This is something that is ingrained in the modern American Western European society as far as I have learned. How to operate money, how to get rich, how to profit, all these profit economy things, they were out there. We didn't learn those. So a lot of our first businesses failed. But... We learned all of these everyday things, how to be self-sufficient. Because that was more important here, because you couldn't have real businesses. So that's why a lot of businesses in the early 90s operated with these weird schemes and bit outside of the law, a lot of outside of the law sometimes, and why now some politicians here are more corrupt than you might have in your country. But I know how to fix my own stuff at home. I know a lot of very practical things, which I'll try to give to my kids as well because I think it's kind of important and uh, for a philosopher like myself because that's my primary education it's important to note how these childhood impacts how these memories really touched the people and how this made us think a bit differently because even now in eastern Europe if your chair just breaks down you just break off a leg of your chair Your first thought isn't, oh my, I'm going to have to throw this out. No, your first thought is, hmm, how should I fix this? We're a bit more economical in this way. And it's kind of an important thing when talking about childhood, because childhood impacts all of your life. So, um, yeah, (laughs) another tangent about the mentality of the Soviet people. Wow. But yeah, 
these books included not only this very, very, very kind of important in my eyes information about how to live your everyday life, but they included some weird, interesting stuff as well. For example, how to mix useful chemicals and how to do fun experiments with them. For example, there were rules and things and steps and how to, for example, how to create your own shampoo. From everyday chemicals, which you, which you could buy on every chemistry club out there or every apothecary or whatever. Yeah, you just, you know, you want to make your own cleaning liquid, shampoo, whatever. So, yeah, here. Here you go. Here's your instructions. You know, go on, kid. It's fun. And that's great. Also, there was a lot of information how to build, for example, a radio or how to fix a broken television set. Because like I said before, a color television set cost as much as a motorcycle. And that was about a half a year's worth of salary. So if your color television broke down, you better fix it. Because it's really, really expensive. And if you're being taught how to fix your color television set with a kinescope and everything from being a kid, then you kind of can work this out. Because like I said, the Soviet government knew how the people actually lived. Another instruction in the book is how to solder things for one also. Basically, those books which were popular for kids of all ages and genders contained information on how to do everything mixed in with some political propaganda. Including, by the way, a ton of camping advice, especially on water tourism, as canoeing and water tourism and all those water boat-related things were and also still are super popular in the USSR. And, and still are here in Latvia, by the way, in the Baltics in general, I think. Because personally, whenever I have some free time in the summer, like this one, which is rare lately, I would love to do that again. Because for me, nothing beats just boating around and doing some water tourism in the nature for me. It's really super fun. And maybe, again, it's a cultural thing. Because I don't really go to sports events as much as I would just like to go out in the nature. Hey, maybe Canadians will understand me. I, I know that we have some Canadian listeners and some of them uh, live in remote places in Canada. So, yeah. How you guys live, yeah, that's how we learn to live. Anyway, all of this information was there... Because you just couldn't get things in the stores and everything was a deficit. So we all became do-it-yourself experts. Now, for girls, as far as I know, it was all about how to knit, how to sew, how to pickle things and preserve food otherwise. What berries and mushrooms that can be picked in the forest are edible and what you could do with them. Which plants have medical properties and for what purpose and how should they be used? You know, herbal medicine... Now, sure, it would be counted as enforcing traditional gender roles or something, but then again, I know all this stuff. And Alice, like I said, my lovely editor and fiancé, also knows all of this stuff. Now, we don't really need to know all this stuff anymore, but this was a huge part of the Soviet culture and how the Soviet people operated. Well, by this point, it's just very handy now and then, but hey, I can assure you that if the apocalypse comes in the post apoc weird sense, Mad Max style, Eastern Europeans will be among those people who flourish in this kind of a situation. But now, let's just put two and two together, shall we? We have all of this mandated training in schools and books and, and all these clubs. Now, mix that one with an ever-increasing desire to misbehave. And we've gotten ourselves my saudad feeling from the beginning of this episode. And your typical Soviet teenager boy. Besides all of this, we've come to the part on what the children did when the parents weren't looking. What I did when I was a kid. Let's have 
some real fun. So, the really dangerous stuff which kids did for fun in the Soviet Union. Well, boys mostly. I'll do a female version of this at one point as well. Uh, probably gonna ask Alice for help. But yeah, um, I have some stories and interesting things from this. And a lot of help in this article and a good source was the stories of a photographer, Alexei Marachovets. Quoting him, <clears throat> I wasn't some sort of uh, weird hooligan or, un or without supervision or some sort of uh, just a douchebag hanging around. But when I remember what exactly did we do in, in like the neighborhood, I kind of start to feel a bit bad. Our skills could be used by an extremist, actually. That's what Alexei Alexei, if you want to call him in English, uh, the English pronunciation of the Alexei Marachovets, but it's Alexei Marachovets, and he remembers this. So, um, I'm using my own special feeling here to present you some things, because we didn't have computers when we were terrible, terrible kids, terrible small kids, and that basically states everything. Yeah, we didn't know Contra... We didn't use Atari, we just learned about them way later. But all of our real entertainment, all of our real stuff, which wasn't all of this educational training, mandatory stuff, happened in, in the neighborhood, in the backyard. And we did a bunch of things. And I can just assure you with a great confidence, really, that I didn't, didn't really miss computers in my childhood. For one, there were slingshots. Oh boy. We all made self-made slingshots. From branches of wood, we just cut them out with our pocket knives, which were everywhere. Because we all had the pocket knives because of all the attitude in the books. And we just made them. And there were two, two forms of them. There were the classical ones, which were ex essentially these slingshots made from tree branches where you just carefully at home, you sat down and then you just cut it out. And then you applied a rubber band from it, either bought, bought from an apothecary or uh, some service store. And the tougher the rubber band was, the stronger the slingshot was. And then you kind of fastened, sometimes for extra fanciness, a piece of leather to it so that it would hold the shot. And you would use a, uh, a little, you would use small stones as the ammunition, or, or if you wanted something lighter, the, the seeds of the cherry. The, the bones of the cherries, as we call him here. Or if you were, like, extra hardcore, you'd use these... Uh, oh, wow, how they're called. Um, those those things which are put in bicycles and other places, those small... Uh, ball bearings. Yes, ball bearings. Ball bearings were the horror. Because if you used small stones or ball bearings, and you could just used them and find them and you had made and you had made a really strong proper slingshot i remember you could just smash a champagne bottle or a wine bottle from about 3 meters away you could really destroy things and a bit more hooligan oriented people in the yard just used them to just slingshot those at trolley buses or or other places uh, of course, sometimes, you know, some some really bad kids hurt people and there was, like, really yelled at. But we used slingshots because that was cool. The other part was where you just took some huge piece of a wire, like aluminium wire, and made the, made the slingshot from that one. That was a bit more complicated version. It was a bit more lighter, but more easily made and transformable. And 
every every of these slingshots were basically valued, like evaluated, because economy works as it works. And I'm a huge economy and maths nerd as well. Economy works as it does. And I remember that at least in the early 90s, and I've heard stories about this from earlier periods where they traded, traded it for different stuff. Basically, earlier, like, you know, the little currency for kids was like when you take a button or a small coin and you put it on these tram tram rails or, or just railway rails and when the tram passes over it, it just gets flattened and that was considered cool. And in the early 90s here, we had, you know, these these chewing gum things for kids. I guess it was just chewing gum or bubble gum maybe. I don't really know the difference. But there were things called fantiki as we called them. But basically it was just, this, this chewing gum was wrapped in a paper where there was some some car on it and the, the companies were turbo sensen final 90 something like that just but these wrapping papers of of chewing gums with the cars on them were basically worked like currency and those smashed buttons or small coins before that and the slingshot could go for so many of those so, so many of those fantike it was amazing and later it became like Tazo, a bit, but just a bit later when we got those Tazo. They were called Fishki here. Those are also currency for kids. And of course, if you got a chocolate or real chewing gum in the 80s, that was amazing. If, if you had a pack of Orbit chewing gum, you could trade it for the slingshot and some other stuff, like a lot of stuff. And the kids did that, because that's how it works. Now, the second thing, and this is, this is a dangerous thing, really. And the second thing was a bit less dangerous, but right now, Americans, at least most Westerners, will understand the term super soccer, right? We have them here as well right now, like the usual super soakers. Back then, we didn't have such at all. But what we did have were those pulverized sprays, like you have on, on stuff where you kind of spray your flowers with it, or, or when you wash your windows, you know, those sprayer things. And those were collected and washed out and used with water, and those were our water guns. And you just customized them, you applied the sprayer thing to other bottles, and it was sort of an alternative for a very expensive and a deficit water pistol product. You just use this one. And by the way, it was a good way how to quench your thirst too. And of course, people put weird stuff in it, such as pee if you were nasty or ink if you were super nasty. But yeah, then you just sprayed it around because it was fun. Now, Another thing which is interesting is that I've heard that in the 50s or some or so, in America you had this toy called lawn darts, which was extremely dangerous and banned and various rules were set up on this and you kind of bought this and it was considered bad. And when I read about this story, I really, really laughed. Because we had those as well. We didn't have any actual darts. Didn't have actually lawn darts. We made them ourselves making the wings from cardboard and and we stuck a needle with with some matches to make it a dart or we used nails and bigger sticks to make a bigger dart and then we just kind of threw them everywhere and this is the do-it-yourself thing because we didn't really actually thought that you can buy these things because you couldn't you really really tried to make your own dart from cardboard matches and a needle or a nail and bigger sticks and bigger pieces of cardboard and it was like paper planes. People were 
competing on hey, who can throw it the furthest, uh, how the aerodynamics work and everything. It was a really a natural process. Also, this was made sometimes from electrodes. Basically, you just put a stone in one end of the electrode and the other one, you kind of stuck feathers to it. The electrode parts from the condensers were also used because you could just find them a lot in a lot of places. Another one, another fun stuff was boomerangs. Yeah, yeah, you can just easily buy a boomerang of any form in a store. But in the late 80s, they didn't sell anything like this here. We kind of went throughout of the situation, solved the situation in the following way. Everyone bought in the office, office supply stores two 30 centimeter wooden rulers. And then you kind of used duct tape to just make them in a cross form in the center. And at, after that, later at home, when you kind of glued them together... You kind of bent the rulers so that they would have this aerodynamical form. Like one, one, one ruler was bent downwards, the other one was bent a bit upwards. You kind of had to work on this to get a boomerang. At the end, you really got a boomerang, which really actually returned. And oh my god, we scared all sorts of crows and pigeons all over the place. Also, the funnest part was... We lived in those mostly very high-story apartment buildings, as the, the block houses, like 9, 12-story buildings. And if you could sneak up on the roof and throw this yourself made boomerang from there and it actually came back to you and didn't fall on the floor, oh man, that, that cost so many funchics. You could trade a whole good, good slingshot and at least three to five funchics for such a boomerang. It was amazing. The second thing was, and this goes more into... The slingshot territory there were blowguns. You just basically got a metal tube, and it was hard to get a hold of such metal tubes, suitable metal tubes of a certain diameter as a kid. So those were even more expensive than the slingshots among the kids. And you kind of glued it, glued it up with, with sort of newspapers to make it look prettier, and you kind of messed with it with a hammer and tried to make it better. And you just kind of uh, do, did spitballs with that one. You kind of just chewed paper and spit it through there. Or you made special, cool, smaller darts with feathers on them to shoot at the target. Because these blowguns were really, ex really, really cool. But now, all of this like seems normal to you, right? <laughs> now, we get to the stuff about which I'm sort of ashamed of. But, you know, it's still important to the story. And as this is about childhood and fun, this is my, my personal childhood and my personal fun together with the stories of some other people who are older than me childhoods. Right now we're getting into the danger territory. You know, there are matryoshkas, as you know. Those dolls which are usually made from wood and that you kind of separate and there's another doll like that inside of it. Those were made out of plastic. And from the similar plastic were also made dolls called Vanka Fistanka, which is basically, it's like this ball with smaller balls attached and some face. It's a ball with a, an, a ball inside of it, 
It's like a plastic toy, which looks like two balls stacked on top of each other, made, made look like a person or a bigger bear or a face. And the bigger ball on the bottom, there's a metal ball inside of it. it there's just a center of mass there. Basically, you kind of, if you, if you lay this plastic doll down, it kind of gets up again because the center of mass is, is, is in the ball. Now, it doesn't matter what you could do with these plastic matryoshkas and those balls, because these were not used to their original intention. These were made from a very, very particular, very hard plastic. And in, and in a very nice way, you could get those balls made from this very interesting hard plastic beakalite, uh, beakamite, something like that. Uh, is the same plastic which the old phones were made. One of the first plastics. I'm, I'm not a chemist, so I can't tell you the exact name of it. But every kid figured out very soon that if you take this plastic toy, which is dirt cheap, and you kind of wrap it around in a, in a foley, in an aluminum foil, aluminum, aluminum, I don't know which is the proper pronunciation, in foil or in a newspaper, just newspaper, and then you set it on fire, it creates an amazing smoke bomb. And as kids love to play cowboys and Indians and all sorts of military things, this was amazing. The problem was the smoke turned you black. It really colored you black because it's a poisonous, dangerous smoke which you shouldn't inhale, but it's white and thick. So, yeah, Bakelite. It's Bakelite. Right, I remember this one. So if you just made... If you wrapped it in foil or paper and, and burned it, you got a smoke bomb. And it cost, like, really cheap. Now, for all sorts of games and the childhood, what can be more fun than a smoke bomb? I have something more fun than a smoke bomb. Like before, when I mentioned the slingshots. And before that, there was the knife. Everyone had a pocket knife of some sort. We love our pocket knives. We, make, we, we kept them sharp. We actually did things with them, like making all of this stuff required a knife that you have it. But we find and found an interesting way of uh, using those knives even then. And we kind of hid them from our moms and we, we kind of used them for all sorts of games. And one of these games were called Nazichkia. Nazichkia. Something like that. Um, little knives. Uh, that, that's how it's called. Basically, the game consists of uh, the fact that you go outside in the yard and you find a place where there's like clear ground or where you can see cuts in the ground. You draw a circle with your knives on the ground. It's just a circle. Then you split the circle into equal parts, approximately equal parts, according to how many people are playing. Now, the game goes like this. You have to stand on each separate part like every person stands on this part and they take turns while standing you can't move your legs from the ground while standing you kind of using your knife cut off a part of the area that your competitors are standing on and they can stop you with with just just your leg they can put a leg in your line then it doesn't count it's one of the versions of it the trick is to just and then you just take turns doing this the trick is to just cut off the most ground from your opponents and to be the last one standing with the most ground. 
there were alternative rules where the circle was just drawn, but it was large enough to stand on, and you took turns cutting parts out from that one. But the thing was, you were out if, while standing, you cut out such a piece of the circle, of the segment of the circle from where your competitor was standing on, so that he couldn't stand it uh, on there for three seconds. And you could stand it, like, on your fingertips or something, but you just had to have a place there. Those are one of the interesting games that we played using just knives and ground. And we played it a lot around with, with, with knives. Now, the other fun part which we played was was lead. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Lead. I've read about all this flint event with lead being in the water, and right now we know that lead is extremely poisonous and you shouldn't really touch it at all. But back then, lead was everywhere. Same as asbestos, by the way, in the Soviet Union. But lead was everywhere. So we really kind of used lead for a lot of things. A lot of my childhood, early childhood, was spent around just wandering around garages and all sorts of scrapyards, just looking for uh, old old batteries, old accumulators for electricity which contained this lead. So you just had to find a lot of lead, which was very soft, and you got them from these accumulators and other parts, from all sorts of electronics, but then you kind of put it in a uh, in a tin can, basically for, I don't know, beans or, or, or other preserved things, and then you melted the lead. Now, this is metallurgy. We did that thing. Because after you melted it, because it melted really quickly... You kind of molded something from plastilin, plastic forming mass, wax, whatever. Because we knew how. We molded things and and then we made stuff with the lead. We made little toy soldiers. Because if, if you got your older brother or someone who knew something to make a mold for it, then you saved up the mold for your little plastic soldier, little lead soldier to be exact. And then you kind of went around, gathered lead and powered it in. And those were crappy-looking soldiers. We weren't any sculptors or anything, but those kids who could make good sculpts, oh, those were really valued kids. Because your only source of making toy soldiers were from this lead. If you wanted to play some sort of a army man slash warhammer game, you had to have these lead soldiers. Those were one of the more expensive and actually one of the more dangerous parts of everything that happened on the yard. At least on my yard. And also, you just when the first plastic soldiers arrived, and I'm talking early 90s, you, the kids didn't even have to mold them. You just took, a, took, took, took this mass of, uh, you know, forming plastiline, and you just took your plastic toy or some other small soldier which was bought somewhere, you pressed it in, you, you made a mold that way, and then you powered the lead in it. And, of course, it was very, very dangerous... But that was really cool because you could get these little lead miniatures that you could play with then. Now, this might shock you, but lead wasn't one of the more uh, dangerous things which you played with. Like I said, the science shops, especially the chemistry ones, or all these clubs, were really, really, really important. My favorite toy when I was a kid was carbide. Oh, wow. Yeah, those were <clears throat> the magical stones with the specific smell, which exploded in water. Wow. Basically, if you got your hands on carbide, which you have borrowed from the local welding shop, because it's used in welding, 
uh, or your chemistry club or something, or you just just traded it for slingshot or a good knife or something. If you got carbide, that was the fun for the whole day. The guys who basically really worked in welding just basically took them out of the, the balloons, the big gas balloons where they actually worked with them. You, you just searched for the balloons of carbide to make stuff from it. And, oh boy, if you put carbide in water, it explodes. People were making carbide cannons, carbide grenades. Uh, it could have hurt you a lot. But the nicest part is that carbide with water makes acet- acetylene. And it burns. And it's great. You threw carbide in ponds. You threw carbide in water everywhere. You did everything you could with carbide because Soviet boys loved chemistry because it explodes. But like I said, the most effective thing was your hand carbide cannon. You had It was like this tube and you had to put a piece of carbide in it and you used this tube from a beer can and then you kind of powered some water in it through a hole and then it kind of exploded and that was great and you used this to just make all sorts of things now uh, it's of course extremely dangerous but the kids really find their way with carbide that wasn't the most important part though I haven't even got into magni magnium it's the mg part of the periodic table. Oh yeah, you could get that in apothecaries too. It costs uh, basically cupcakes in apothecaries and you can get it in all sorts of clubs. The thing with that is that it's extremely reagent and it also explodes. The thing was you take a bit of this magni thing, it's called magni in Russian and I'm not good at chemistry right now, but you took this and you stuffed it in a paper, you really rolled it up all close, then you kind of kind of rolled over it with a with a duct tape and just made a small, small hole where you could put the end of a matchstick in it. And that matchstick, when you dropped it on the ground, exploded and made cool noises. And it started burning, and it was amazing. Yeah, we were really educated with chemistry when we were kids. Of course, we didn't call it magnum, we didn't, we didn't, we didn't know how the reactions work, but it was fun. Another fun was... Uh, there was there's material of roofs called Schieferis or Schiefer. I don't know how it's in English, but it's the curved material that is put on some roofs. Now, that thing, if you put that in a fireplace or in a fire, it explodes in various shards. Oh, my neighbor basically got up shards of that in his leg and got to be taken to the surgery, but yeah, we did that because we were stupid kids. And that was just amazing. Of course, yeah, that's the feeling which I told you about, that it's totally not safe. And I, I should have probably mentioned at the beginning that they don't, don't, lis- don't let your kids listen to this episode. Oh, well, that's going to go in the show description. Another thing was uh, we used condoms. There were condoms in the USSR, well, obviously. But the most fun thing to do with a condom was that you took a big ball or a bucket and then you kind of powered... You put your condom inside of that ball so it wouldn't burst and you just powered water in it and then you tied the condom together. And then you got this water bomb. And like all small kids, we just went up to the ninth floor of the buildings and dropped that on the floor. On the asphalt, on people, and made them wet. 
That was really fun, throwing uh, condoms filled with water down from apartment buildings on the floor, and that was also cool. Now, one of the more dangerous things, and oh my god, I've gotten through like a lot of my childhood with all of these memories and everything, and you know that in the half of these cases I could have just killed or maimed myself. But this one is also kind of interesting. We really didn't consider ecology back then, and you know, these special lamps or kinescopes. Yeah, you know what? If you throw a hammer at one and throw it somewhere, one, the screen really explodes well because of the gases inside, and also, you can just gather materials from it to build other things from it. We loved to break and explode technical stuff, because we knew how it worked. It was great. Now, nothing exactly with the kinescopes and exploding stuff was as dangerous as the CO2 balloons. You know, these small things. If you're doing airsoft, I'm also doing airsoft, by the way, so they're still there. Um, if you're doing airsoft guns or BB guns for you, and they're not on pressured air, there are these airsoft guns which are on these CO2 balloons. They just, um, they're, they're these small things. They're kind of similar to nitrate oxide, which is the laughing gas, which you get in your whipped cream dispensers. So there are these small balloons with gas. They were, they were really available in the Soviet Union as well. So if you to use those things, or even sometimes unused, but that was really rare to get for a small 10-year-old kid in the Soviet Union or something. If you threw those, or in the worst case, uh, used aerosol cans, like, you know, perfumes, deodorants, stuff like that. Throwing those in the fire, especially the CO2 ones, it produced a huge explosion. But when I think about it, that's basically a grenade if you throw it in a, in a fire and it explodes and there are shards everywhere. And I don't even know how all of my limbs are at the same place because we just used to do this all the time. Uh, if you find a deodorant which says, don't throw in the fire, oh, you throw it in the fire. If you find out the CO2 balloon, pff, obviously that one's going to go into the fireplace. But other people also use these things to make bolts fly and uh, and, and like... Uh, nails fly around and people really tried to make something explode and fly around in the air while throwing all these really dangerous things into the fire. Sometimes we kind of got a bit sadistical too for some reason, for a while in the Soviet Union, gathering huge beetles were, was really cool. They were valuable while they were alive. There were all types of them. We call them Maiski Yazuki or Maiva Bulls. Again, um, I'm sorry, don't know the exact term in English, but we used them. And you kind of put them out and you played with them because you formed families. And it's like basically Pokemon. Actually, I have heard that something like this, like gathering bugs and making them fight each other or interact, is where the Japanese people got the idea for Pokemon. And that thing is was, was I don't know about it right now because I'm too old for this. But that thing was really important and popular here as a kid. Oh boy. What we also had were used bullet shells, which everyone played with. Those weren't as dangerous, but they were also used as a sort of uh, a currency here, together with the pistons and the guns, you know, those little plastic things or paper things which you kind of stuff it in your toy gun and you squeak the trigger and it makes an exploding sound and a bit of a sulfur smell. Yeah, we had a lot of those too, but those were like the more boring ones. Now, what was really interesting was... Uh, condensators. In the fifth grade at school, uh, everyone got really interested in radio details. The condensators from the TV 
of the 200 um, MKF. I don't really know the measurement here. I just know it how the, the shortage is. Essentially, condensators with 2000 MKF and 100 to 300 volts who were charged from the from the 220 volt wall plug because that's what we have here. And, and they were used as an electroshock to your comrades. You charged it up. There were like these condensator batteries. And then you kind of charged them up and poked your friends with them, giving them small charges. Why? Because, hey, what's, what's more amazing than figuring out how to charge an electric condensator than using it as a small electroshock when you're a kid to other kids? Welcome to Soviet Union. Do it yourself makes for... A rather interesting childhood. Now, of course, there were some all sorts of uh, more peaceful things to do, like some all of your do-it-yourself kids and const- and constructor kids, and of course magnifying glass, which we used to burn everything. But uh, the constructor kids, for example, which is also a fond memory, they weren't like Legos. They weren't made from plastic. They were essentially these metal bars with holes in them, where you put uh, your cogs and bolts in them and you screw them together and you made various stuff from that one. That was a more peaceful thing. But then someone figured out how to make a piston pistol from them and then it all went, well, the usual way. (laughs) Yeah, like I said, I am extremely surprised that I didn't lose any fingers or anything of that part when I was growing up. Wow. I missed that, but I would... Really doubt that I would repeat it today. Hmm. So, well, I've actually spent all of this time talking about just childhood. I haven't touched the movies, I haven't touched the adult entertainment. Like, I don't know, uh, playing cards, going to the movies, seeing all of these cultural things. I haven't actually touched chess, which I really want to talk about because I remember these guys from Endgame Clothing. I love you guys. Because that's a chess company, and they really asked me about this. And I've got a listener question about the electronical music and those special instruments of the Soviet Union. And I haven't even touched the toys that much. There is a lot of things that I really want to speak of. Um, Yeah, but it just takes too much time. And I've really put a lot of effort in this episode. So... What are we going to do is that I'm going to continue with the narrative episodes... But I'll just continue about these Soviet culture-specific things. Maybe not to worry you too much. I'm gonna go and discuss on my next specials, intertwined with the episodes about the narrative story and the history of all of this. I'm gonna intertwine that with all of this deep exploration of Soviet everyday life, everyday culture, everything that was going on here. Because this subject is humongous, and as long as you're interested in this one, um, I'm going to keep doing this. Well, at least I when I feel like I'm done. So, if you have any complaints or that you have anything special that you want to hear about, um, feel free to write to us or leave it in a survey or just talk to us about it. Because this is important to me, and I want to give you the whole story. I want to give you all this feel. Next episode is gonna be about 1989, and I've acquired three new books just because of this reason. It's gonna come out in mid-June. In mid-June, by the way, you'll have a surprise for me. Um, yeah, I won't reveal it right now. Some people already know what I'm talking about, but 
You'll have a very, very special surprise for me then. This is just a teaser or something. But yeah, thank you for listening to this show. Sorry that I, again, failed to touch every subject that I wanted to touch, but it's coming. And, uh, das vidanje, tovarishi. Oh, and listen to the Lesser Bonapartes, and um, don't be mad about the extra episode, which I'm going to post right after this is published. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The darkness awaits. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to the western border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. The Eastern Border salutes you.